listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. Have you ever wondered how certain people are able to achieve what seems impossible to everyone else? We see this a lot in extreme sports when an athlete pulls off something that has never been done before. But we also see this in entrepreneurship with certain individuals who outperform everyone else in their industry. Today's guest is Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's also one of the world's leading experts on human performance. During our conversation, Stephen shares the science behind what it takes to achieve the impossible, as he has covered in his book, The Art of Impossible. For links to resources mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 079. And now get ready to learn how to achieve what seems impossible. Here is my conversation with Stephen Kotler. Stephen, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. So excited to have you with us today. Alex, it's good to be with you. Yeah, I'm really excited about this book that the art of impossible that you wrote. I mean, I went through it pretty quick because I wanted to finish the book before interviewing you. I I mentioned that to you, but I've got to go back over this thing and start really diving into it and just picking out the little pieces because there is so much packed into this book. You did a, a fantastic job. I'm so excited for this to be coming out. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I know you're not quite as excited as I am yet. It's got to hit that bestseller first, right? Before you can really share the excitement. Uh, I, 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 yeah, right now we're in the, oh my God. You're right. Phase. Um, and it's, you got to also understand, have you published a book? Have you put out a book? Not yet. I'm, I'm getting close. All right. So the thing, I'll just warn you in advance, nothing happens on publishing day. It's not like a mm. movie or you dropped a video or a song and people can consume it. Like you publish a book. That all that happens is they go to Amazon, they type in some code, I don't see it. This thing arrives in their mail like a week later, and then people are busy. So like you're even your closest friends, it's like six weeks later before they're like, oh yeah, dude, I read your book, right? So like, just know, there's a long silence, uncomfortable silence ahead of you and me. Right, no one has actually told me that. So yeah, that's it, good it, to know. It's no, it's, it, it's it, when you think about, uh, since this is creating a brand, when you think about like marketing a book as a product, it's really weird because normally word of mouth is you get the product and you start talking about the product. This is a product that shows up and you literally have no idea what to talk about until you've done this incredibly hard thing that's going to take you seven hours and whenever you can find seven hours. Right. You know, well, I read, I read the galley. I read it in two days. I literally couldn't put it down. And also I wanted it done before I talked to you, but you did a great job. So I'm calling it now. This is me a bestseller. It's going to be just a slam dunk. So I'm excited to dive into it with you today. Let's do it. So you call it the art of impossible. Can you just start off by explaining what that even means? Because impossible usually means impossible, right? Well, okay. So I do actually mean impossible. My career as a, as a guy who has studied the neuroscience and psychology of peak human performance has been spent studying those moments in time when impossible becomes possible. That was my beat as a journalist. That's my sort of work as a scientist. And I've done this in every domain imaginable. I've been in the room when more impossible became possible things happened than, than, you know, most people um, could even consider. And any, and I've, and I've really tried to figure out why is this happening? So what I like to say is that's capital I impossible. Those are four-minute miles, Roger Bannister's four-minute mile, or cultural impossibles like Rosa Parks sitting at the mm-hmm. front of the bus, or intellectual impossibles, theory relativity. That's right. I, that's what I did to study. But the lessons that you learn studying how people accomplish capital impossible for reasons that we can get to as we move along 
they're roughly the same as what it takes to accomplish small I impossible. And that's the impossible we're all interested in. Small I impossible is if capital I impossible is the stuff that has never been done and we believe is never going to be done. Small I impossible is the stuff that we believe is impossible for us. So the example I give in the book is I was born in Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s at a time that the city was dying. Steel markers mm -hmm. were throwing themselves off bridges because the mills were shutting down. The Cuyahoga River was catching on fire repeatedly. Right. It, it, it was a bad time. It's a bad place. And I wanted to be a writer. Right. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any writer. I definitely didn't. Like it was not a town for artists and weirdos. Yeah. I was a punk rock. It was it, right. So how to figure out how to become a writer. That was that was my first impossible. What I mean by that is there was no clear path between A and B and statistically really, really poor odds of success. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by small I impossible. And it turns out that, you know, small I impossible is also rising out of poverty or figuring out how to get paid to do what you love. That was my impossible, right? Or overcoming deep trauma or becoming world-class at anything you do, right? All of these things are statistically impossible. They're very difficult things. There's no clear path between A and B. There's no blueprint, there's no map, and your odds of success are ridiculously, ridiculously low. So it turns out the formula is the same. First of all, it turns out there's a formula for impossible, which is the first crazy thing, right? Right. Um, and we can talk about why that is. And it turns out the formula is the same. Doesn't matter if you're going after capital I impossible or small I impossible. But one thing that is definitely clear is that a lot of what we mean by life satisfaction, well-being, meaning, purpose, that's essentially another way of saying I'm going after small I impossible, after small I impossible, after small I impossible. And I will tell you, if you're interested in capital I impossible, the really big things, Occasionally, this is not true, but most of the time, you nobody sets out to accomplish capital I impossible. They set out to accomplish small I impossible after small I impossible after small I impossible, and you sometimes get lucky and accomplish capital I impossible along the way, right? I can't set out to write a great world-changing book in the morning when I sit down to write, right? That's not what I'm trying to do because that, like, that actually will block performance and a lot of cause problems for you, right? Of course. You know, I'm thinking about this. So the small I impossible for many of us, that looks like um, we joked about it. Meeting a girl could be one thing, but more realistically, for many of the listeners today, that means something along the lines of taking a side hustle into a full time business, finally being able to put in that 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 resignation note to your your boss in the nine to five job that, you know, you're great at maybe, but you're just not passionate about. That's what small I impossible looks like to most of us. And I think that many of us think of it as a capital I impossible. We don't even look at it as a, as a lowercase i impossible, but I'd love to talk about some of your studies. Is this something you've actually seen people do? They've been able to take this and transitions, not just in like, I know you've done a lot in sports and extreme sports and things like that, but also in the business oh, no. world, does this work I mean, the same way? Yeah, I mean, I, at the Flow Research Collective, right, which is my organization where we mm -hmm. train, train people in this, in all this work, we train about a thousand people a month. Um, we're one of the larger kind of science-based science peak performance training organizations in the world. And 90% of our clientele are one of two things. They are either overstressed C-suite executives, peak performers who got massively burned out and want to get back to it, right? The, 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 or powerhouse women in their 40s and 50s who took time away from their dreams to have a family, and now they want to get back and really figure out who they are and how to kick ass in the world. Yeah. Um, those are, right, so 
and and of course we train everybody else in possible in between but like no like this stuff really works in the business world i started my work in extreme sports but i you know science technology a lot of the like like my beat as a reporter as a science writer and tech guy i covered those moments in time science fiction became science fact so when i say i was in the room when impossible became possible the first time an artificial vision implant was turned on and a blind man could see again mm. i was in the room the first time there was a private spaceship that launched into space I was in the blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, you weren't in the spaceship though, were you? I was not in the spaceship. Okay. Just, no, just checking. <laughs> I, I was not. I was, I was not in the spaceship. But it was, uh, that was the launch of the XPRIZE. And it was really mm -hmm. one of the, let, let's just say that rocket geeks know how to party. That was okay. one of the, that, the, <laughs> the party we had in the Mojave Desert around the winning of the XPRIZE was one of the most fun evenings I've ever spent in my life. Love it, man. That's, that's great. <laughs> Very cool. So I want to get into this. How can we begin or ourselves begin to actually take on this impossible achievement that we're going after, this feat that we really want to do? So I think so. One of the things, high level, peak performance is nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. We are biological creatures. We are designed to work a certain way. If you read the whole book, you'll notice that what I did is designed to work in a sequence and in a particular area. That's I'm following the biology, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the whole point. Like everything in the book is the we've all read the thing that the Art of Impossible, I think, does that a lot of other books haven't tried to do yet is we've all read the great books on focus or gratitude or mindfulness right. or grit or right. Like, but nobody has told us how to put it all together. And the reason is I don't think anybody else has come in from the neurobiology. Once you come in from the neuroscience, you're like, Oh, it all works together. There's a sequence. And so the start of the sequence, and this is where I think a lot of the people, your listeners seem to be exactly there is you want to start with intrinsic motivation right? There's extrinsic motivation, money, sex, fame, things that are outside ourselves that we want. But mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is extrinsic motivator is it's good fuel up to you until, until you make about $75,000 a year. And then money and happiness start to diverge and money and well-being, they all they split. So you see this in companies, they can reward employees up to about $75,000, $80,000 a year monetarily. But once they make that much, that's enough basically for basic needs with a little leftover discretionary. That's all we're talking about here. They start wanting things like autonomy. I want control of my own time. Mastery, yeah. right? I want to get better at the things that I love to do. Passion, I want to work on stuff that I really care about. Purpose, I want to work on stuff that matters in the world. Or curiosity, I want to work on the stuff that draws in my, right? That's what employees want. And that's, so those are your intrinsic motivators. And we have five major intrinsic motivators and they're actually sequenced. Curiosity is the basic fuel of motivation, right? And the next level of intrinsic motivation, the next level up when you can find, and by the way, before we go into this, why is, what do you get from motivation? Biologically, why does motivation matter? What's the point here? Or you're all like, I want motivate. Why do you want motivation? Performance. Human beings are really simple machines. We have a couple of big levers. Attention is our biggest lever. Where we put our attention is the gateway to anything we do in this world. What we choose to focus on and what we choose to not focus on, that's everything we're going to do, right? At a really foundational, simple, simple, simple level, right? You can, that makes sense, a little clear, right? Yeah, you oh gotta, yeah. You got to go into experience through attention. You go in through learning, anything you do. So, Attention, the brain 
is an energy hog. It's 25% of our energy. It's 2% of our mass, 25% of our energy at rest. Right. What do we spend most of our energy on neurobiologically? Attention. It's a giant energy hog. Why does intrinsic motivation matter so much? Gives you focus for free. When you're curious about something, you pay natural attention to it. Think about how hard you have to work to pay attention to something you don't, you're not interested in, and so that you're a little, right? Right. So neurobiologically, curiosity is the neurochemical dopamine and norepinephrine. If I turn up curiosity, I get passion. All romantic passion, when you fall in love with, with, with somebody, that's dopamine and norepinephrine. Think about how much attention you pay to somebody you're falling in love with. You're getting all that for free if you get passion right. That's you go so far so fast with so little energy. It's why passion matters. It's a focusing mechanism. And so you start with curiosity, and literally the game is figure out list if you list, say, 25 things you're curious about, find the places they intersect. Play there. Passion often is like the intersection of four or five of your curiosities. Every one of your listeners who's got a side hustle that's the thing they love, I'll bet that side hustle sits at the intersection of three or four of your curiosities. If you take that intersection, you play there for a while and you, you really cook it up a little bit. There's, you know, there's ways to do what we talk about in the book, but you just add fuel to that fire, right? Play right. there, get it going. Then take that passion and attach it to a cause greater than yourself. And there's all kinds of reasons you want to do this from a peak performance perspective. It basically gives you more feel-good neurochemistry. You go farther, faster, right? Other people, when it's a cause greater than yourself, other people start rallying behind you. First of all, you get the social support. Second of all, like the minute you get other people, you get oxytocin and endorphins and serotonin, more feel-good juice, more focus for free. You go farther, faster, right? And once you have purpose, what do you need? You need autonomy to pursue that purpose. I need to be free to pursue my purpose. Every one of your listeners is like, I punch a clock. I work nine to five. It's okay. But if I could just right, work beyond purpose and have the autonomy, the freedom. And once you have autonomy, you have to have mastery, which is the skills to pursue that purpose. And bonus, my core work centers on flow the optimal state of performance, which is an enormous performance enhancer. All of these things, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, they're motivators, but they're also flow triggers. Flow follows focus. It only shows up when all our potential is in the right here, right now, right? So when you line all these things up, you can't help but paying attention, total attention to the thing that you're doing because it's totally in line. And the result is more flow and flow boosts motivation, productivity, creativity, learning, innovation, empathy, strength, stamina, whatever. Um, so you get grit. All this stuff goes up as a result. So once you get all this stuff pointed in the same direction, the result is flow. Just like McKinsey did a, a study. They spent 10 years uh, running around the world asking top executives, how much more productive do you report? Are you in flow? And it's self-reported studies. So as valid as can be with a self-reported study, but the average was 500%. 500% means you go to work on Monday, you spend Monday in a flow state, you take Tuesday through Friday off and you get as much done as everybody else. To put Gosh. it in hardcore context, if you spend two days a week in flow, you're a thousand percent more productive than the competition. So like, why do you want to line up all your intrinsic motivators to produce more flow? Because you're going to get all the hard work done 
for less energy, faster, with much more joy and satisfaction. And as a bonus, you're going to get colossal productivity and heightened motivation because flow supercharges motivation, gives you basically more feel-good drugs, right? So it supercharges motivation again. So it's a positive feedback loop that just gets you farther faster, right? How do you get to the impossible? You build these kinds of positive feedback loops. That's what happens, right? That's the other cool thing about all this stuff is trust me when I tell you the impossible looks much more impossible from the outside than it does from the inside, right? I always do the way I explain this is if there's one lesson that I learned over and over in the past 30 years, it's that human, we humans are capable of extraordinary. In fact, we're all hardwired for extraordinary, mm-hmm. but we yeah. don't figure it out because pace, human capacity is an emergent property, right? It only emerges when we use our skills to the utmost again and again and again and again, right? And then suddenly you wake up one day and you go, oh my God, I'm a badass. How did I get here, right? Like that's the, the and, and you'll never know because learning's invisible, right? Our experience is I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, wow, I don't suck, right? That's the inside of it, right? That's what it feels like on the inside, right? And it's because the adaptive unconscious has to figure it out. If we could learn just by paying conscious attention to stuff, there'd be, you know, there'd be no pain involved, but we can't. Our, we have to figure out how do we automatize it so all of that takes place invisibly. So our experience is you're bad until you're better. Take it one step further because I think this is just a cool thing. It's not my thing. It's not in the book. I wish it was. If I would have heard it before I wrote the book, it would have been in there. This is so our we, bonus right here. <laughs> this is your bonus. We work with a, we work with a great, uh, great neuroscientist a lot at Stanford, Dr. Andrew Uberman. Um, he's, he's one of the world's leading experts on respiration and peak performance. And he likes to say one of the major things that peak performers, impossible slayers, if you will, to put in the language of the book, um, if I was being metaphorical, which we know I'm not, um, <laughs> he likes to say the one thing that peak performers know that regular folks don't is it's always crawl, walk, run. Most everybody else comes in and they want a shortcut. They're like, I want to, I want to be walking fast and I'd like to be running now. Right. And peak performers, they know it's crawl, walk, run. So they don't bother wasting time looking for shortcuts, feeling scared, being self-conscious about the fact that it's going to feel awful and you're going to suck. They just like, okay, it's going to feel awful and I'm going to suck. That's just what it is. I crawl, I walk, I run. Right. That's how you wake up a badass. And in a sense, you do that enough times, yet that's how you end up to impossible, right? And hmm. the, the crawl, walk, run paradigms that are the, war, are the best are the impossible challenges, right? When you're going after something that we're wired for. And the last thing I will say about all this that I think brings it full circle, and I think everybody who's listening, your core audience especially, is going to get this. There are eight major causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are genetics and major trauma. Those are the ones that get all the major attention. We know about them. The other six are around not going big, failure to line up in intrinsic motivation, lack of meaningful work. What does that mean? Well, that's a lack of passion, purpose, curiosity, flow, autonomy, and mastery. And it's one of the major causes of anxiety and depression. I can go on and on and on and on. They're all, if we don't, not going big appears to be bad for us. Not only are we all hardwired for peak performance, if we don't go that way, it doesn't seem to work out very well for us. 
Um, and which is a really strange thing to say, I know, but 30 years of this research that like more, that's one of the like weird, like I was sort of shocked. I remember when I put it, I put it together. I was reading Jonah Hariri's book, Lost Connections, which is literally about the eight major causes of depression. And I'm reading the book and I'm like, oh my God, each one of those is about a mate. Like it's the opposite of something I'm writing about in Art of Impossible. Get this right and you get peak performance, get it wrong and you get anxiety and depression. Why are anxiety and depression massively on the rise right now? Could because we're, we, we've sort of like stopped going after our dreams a little bit. We'll get right back to today's episode, but first, can you do two things for me? First, if you're enjoying this episode, please share it on your social media or share it directly with somebody that you know that would also benefit from listening. Secondly, please visit creatingabrand.com slash free to join the Creating a Brand Inner Circle. This is where I share exclusive content, including online courses, how-to videos, and other resources focused on helping entrepreneurs go further faster. By doing these two things, you are helping me reach and serve more people. So thank you in advance for your support. And now let's get back to today's episode. You're talking about going after your dreams. At some point, you had to make that decision growing up where you did in a place where uh, there wasn't a lot of creative work happening where you grew up necessarily, but you decided you wanted to be a writer and to pursue that. At some point, you had to decide to go after the impossible, which we could also just define right now as as really risking, taking a big risk and, and stepping out, even though you're fearing possibly. Do you find that those are the things that really hold people back from being able to to step into the impossible in the first place? So it's interesting. I don't make this argument in the book because I don't think it is entirely true anymore. But I do, as you probably noticed, I trace uh, there's a little bit of history and origin story of like the science of peak performance. And it actually dates back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche is sort of the first real sort of modern contemporary peak performance thinker because he want he understands that peak performance is about biology. It's the first time Darwin writes The Origin of Species and says, hey, body evolves. And Nietzsche goes, oh, crap, mind evolves, too. So if we're going to optimize mind in the same that we optimize body, you've got to take evolution into account. We need a rigorous science, evolutionary science, right? That's sort of he was calling for psychology. And really what he was calling for was the like psychology of peak performance. And I like I start there. I go my, uh, all the way up. I can't remember what question you asked me. I got on a Nietzsche tangent. I got so interested in my own blah, 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 Nietzsche. That I totally <laughs> lost your question. Well, yeah, I was wondering, like, do you think that fear is often what is holding ah, us back? Yeah, yeah. Are, are we yeah, afraid of sorry. it? So Nietzsche, Freud, Jung, even a little bit Maslow, but Maslow was humanistic psychology. All the early thinkers, they think they literally made the case that, like, you have to break free of mommy and society. Basically, their argument was that mommy and culture weigh too much. And if you can't get past that, you can't even access peak performance. I think we've come a long way since then, meaning society is nowhere nearly as restrictive as it is, as it was 150 years ago, right? Um, but like, there's still issues. So that's part of it. The other side is fear. And um, sooner or later, everybody has to learn the same. So I always tell people fear is a phenomenal motivator. It's the best motivator ever because you get massive amounts of focus for free, 
right? It's total focus for free. When something scares you, like the hard part is not paying attention, right? Right. But until yeah. you have all your intrinsic motivators lined up and you've dialed in some grit skills, you don't really want to start messing too heavy with fear because it will eat you alive, right? Like we all know that. Like you'll, you'll sort of lose that battle. So a lot of, um, one, a lot of peak performance is also about managing your nervous system, right? So you'll notice that a lot of the techniques in the book are about, you know, how do you lower cognitive load? How do you calm the nervous system down? How do you do a lot of that stuff? So that's an ongoing thing. But the only, it, it, and by the way, the fear never goes away, right? Like it always, you always, it always feels that bad. The only difference is peak performers use peer as a compass. Like I will find the thing that scares me the most in the world and I will go right at it because I am going to get so much focus for free. But I also know that I have all my intrinsic motivators lined up and I've dialed in my grit skills and I'm getting a lot of flow and so I can handle it. The truth about fear is, and there's a whole, as you know, there's a section on how do you confront your fears. And you're gonna have to you're gonna have to learn to get good at it, right? Like, by the way, if the impossible thing for you is um how do you meet a, a woman? Like if that's your impossible, right? Like the answer is open your mouth and start a conversation and be interested in what she has to say, right? Like there's no mystery here, right? Open your mouth, start a conversation and be actually interested in women and in what they have to say. You sooner or later, you're, you're going to solve that problem for yourself. But where most people get hung up is the open their mouth and have the conversation. Like literally, like there's no secret. That's the secret, right? You got to take the risk. And what you learn if you've learned how to meet mem you know, people you're attracted to is that, oh, wow, the thing that's best in the world is on the other side of the thing I'm scared of. You have to go through your fears to get to where you want to go. And the truth of the matter is the one of the great, like fun things about getting older is there's this enormous satisfaction, like a life satisfaction and contentment that comes from doing a ton of really hard things in a row, not just one or two, but like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Like when you're up at that level, um, it's a really different thing. Then the, the then the meaning that your life starts to take on is really, really, really deep, especially if you, you manage to help, you know, managed to do some good in the world along the way. And it wasn't just all about you. I love that. I think it's so powerful. I mean, this is just like one of my favorite outlooks I've ever heard on fear, like that you can actually leverage it. Uh, and also the thing you most want is just on the other side of it, man. Like it's on the other side of fear. It's yeah, it, no, it's, it's, the, it's the, I mean, it's fear is awesome. It's just hard to learn to work with and you have to do it a little bit at a time sort of on a daily basis, right? And like, literally, shy guy, say, ask one stranger for a time, the time today, two strangers tomorrow, three strangers, you know what I mean? By like two weeks from now, the goal is to be able to sit down next to a stranger at a bar and maybe po in a post-COVID world, right? Have a conversation, you know what I mean? Like, right. like set really small milestones. And, and so, and let me put it, let me actually take this one step farther and, and make this more concrete. So flow states have triggers. States of optimal performance have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. The most important flow trigger is the challenge skills ratio. Flow follows focus, so it only shows up, as we've talked about, when all your attention is focused on, on the task at hand, right? That's why autonomy, master, all those things are flow triggers. But we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch but not snap. 
So this means for like meeker, shyer, like not yet willing to confront fear, this is past your comfort zone. You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, but only uncomfortable. You don't have to get comfortable with being absolutely terrified out of your freaking mind. You right. just got to get comfortable with uncomfortable, right? And um, for super type A charger types, they often pick off fears that are way too big, right? They push you way out of that sweet spot. They create too much anxiety, which creates too much norepinephrine, which actually blocks your entrance into flow. So there's this sweet spot. And so what I tell people is like, and you can't really put a number on it, but uh, a bunch of years ago, me, I chick sent me high, the godfather of flow psychology, psychologist and a Google mathematician sat down and they said, we think the number is 4%. It's the back of the envelope calculation. It's in the book. Right. Yeah. It's not real, but it's, and, and, and I'll tell you the funniest thing is they were kind of joking when they did it. We got jiggy with it. Like we did it like two or three years of research <laughs> to see like, it's really hard to study. I don't think we ever really got it great, but like, we got really crazy results, like really, really interesting results um, for people um, out of it. So I think it's a better, it's a guidepost is how I think about it now. So like when I go to the gym, I think, well, okay, I want to push four, and it's not 4% harder than what I did last time because my energy level is going to be different day to day, mm -hmm. how I feel, what I'm bringing to the workout, all that, all that stuff, it goes up and down. So I'm going to meet myself where I am and then I'm going to think, okay, 4% outside, like that's how hard you have to push. You want to get to the impossible. I always tell this story. So like the most impossible, impossible I ever saw still to this day is Alex Honnold free soloing Half Dome. Like he free soloed Half Dome. He climbed Half Dome, this rock face in Yosemite with no ropes and no protection. If he falls, he dies. Most people take a day and a half to do it. That's how long it takes most teams. They bring portal edge to the sleep on the side of the wall. Right. He, 2012, Alex Honnold freaking climbs half dome with no ropes, no protection. He falls, he dies. He does it in an hour and 22 minutes. It's like running a four minute mile in 44 seconds or some sense. Right. right? Like, yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's impossible. Like, yeah. It's, I mean, it's beyond impossible, right? Like, you're like, what, what, what? And if you ask Alex how he did it, he's not going to use this language exactly, but he'll essentially say, yeah, man, 4% plus 4% plus 4% day after day, week after week, year after year. That's how you get to impossible, right? And nobody will tell you different. Laird Hamilton once said to me, he said, you know, people look at what I do. They look at the 50-foot waves and they think, oh, my God, dude, that is so impossible. You're crazy. I could never even do that. And he's like, it's because they got no grounds for comparison. They missed the day when I was me scared to surf a two-foot wave. And they missed the three-foot wave and the four-foot wave and the five-foot wave. He's like, that 50-foot wave, he's like, yeah. 47 feet is where my comfort zone is. So 50 is like three feet outside my comfort zone. So for you, it's impossible. For me, it's like just kind of what the next step is what I'm going to do today. You know what I mean? It's yeah. uh, he, he, We see impossible. He sees like you added, he added a five pound weight to his stack, right? Like that's, that's what we're right. talking about. Like really. So um, it's a, and you have to sort of remember that. And you also like, I also want to point out for anybody who's listening to this, who's like, oh my God, I don't feel that burning passion yet for the thing that I do. Is it right? Well, keep playing there. But one thing to always remember, man, we think passion, let's say athletic passion, because it's obvious, it's easy to point at. We see like LeBron James, windmill dunking in with a scowl on his face oh, to win the finals. We forget that passion on the front end is like a little kid in a driveway trying to shoot a basketball through a hoop. 
over and over and over again. That's what passion actually looks like on the front end. So don't be confused by what it looks like on the back end and don't judge yourself against that standard. That standard takes a long time. It's compound interest. Then you get there. But like, you know, walk, it, crawl, walk, run, and the, emo, the emotions come along with it. Love it. Stephen, this, this has been an incredible conversation already. The Art of Impossible, which I'm just going to call it a how-to guide more so than just, just a book. It really is something I'm going to encourage the entire audience to pick up a copy of because it'll really, it'll bring up, it'll level them up really just by, by reading this and taking part of it. So before we close, I want to ask you one more thing. I want you to just imagine that you are sitting one-on-one -on -one in a coaching session with the listeners today, which I, I described them to you. So you have an idea who they are. What advice would you give them as their next step? One, if you want more flow in your life, if you go to my organization, the Flow Research Collective, if you go to flowresearchcollective.com forward slash flow blocker, there are six major blockers of flow. We built the diagnostic. So here, have a free diagnostic. It'll analyze your life. It'll say, look, you want more flow in your life? This is the thing that is standing between you and more flow. So first of all, it'll give you something actionable, a place to start there. And the last thing I want to say, um, because this is like, if I could shift a mindset in your listeners a little bit as a last thing, this is where I'd start. So most people these days, and I don't know why, but they often want like, they want a substance or a technology or a new diet or a, right? Everything we do and everything in the art of impossible is a psychological intervention. And I always tell people, I said, if you want the dramatic story, when I was a journalist on five separate occasions, I was shot at or had a gun like point in my mouth or kind of thing. Um, at no point in those situations, I'd be like, excuse me, sir, would you, would you put down that AK-47 while I, while I use this technology to train my brainwaves up into a calm state so I could dodge your bullets or, you know what I mean? And more specifically, no, you know, the way life happens, the boss says, dude, you're in my office right now. I need you to make the presentation you were going to give next week. I need it today. And you got to do it for my boss and his boss and her boss and all the way up the chain. That's real life. Or honey, can I talk to you for a minute? Right. There's no time when you get honey. Can I talk to you for a minute? Be like, yeah, honey, let me, uh, let me just adjust this substance so I can like train. You know what I mean? Like I want, I want shit that works in the minute when I need it. And the problem with that stuff is the stuff that actually does, these are psychological interventions like the challenge skills balance, right? There's nothing sexy about the challenge skills balance. Like, what did you do today? Oh, I pushed on my challenge skills ratio sweet spot. So I pushed a little harder and I was uncomfortable, right? I mean, there's nothing sexy about it. It's not like, oh, I use this cool new EEG headset or I checked out this mind altering substance that blah, blah, blah. And the truth of the matter is, if you can get past your bias for the sexy sounding quick fix and just commit to this sort of unsexy, slightly slower effects, the end result is you will go so much farther, so much faster. You will save yourself so much time. So my advice is shift your mindset around which interventions you're looking for and go check out the flow blocker. Love it. Steven, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. All right, man. It was my pleasure. Fun talk. As you can tell from this episode, Stephen has done his research and really understands the science behind human performance. It's all about getting the brain into that state of flow. I highly recommend re-listing this episode and also getting yourself a copy of Stephen's book, The Art of Impossible. 
Stephen was kind enough to share a free resource with us. It's a three-minute quiz that will help you determine your next step to boosting your performance so you can begin achieving the impossible in your own life. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Stephen, thank you again for being a guest and sharing your wisdom with us today. To pick up a copy of Stephen Kotler's book, The Art of Impossible, and to take the quiz, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 079. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. Oh,